says this in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20, and we're going to read through verse, chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We continue, though. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This ends the reading of God's word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. May the word of our God stand forever. You may be seated. It was a library simply called the Haskell Library. For the most part, it looks like many of these small town American libraries that were historically built in the early part of the 20th century. But if you were to wander into this library, you would find yourself hearing both English and French spoken. You would find an inordinate number of books on Canadian history. And most obviously, you would find your eyes driven towards a black line that runs right through the library. You see, the U.S.-Canada border run smack dab through the middle of the small library, separating the towns of Derby Line, Vermont, and Stansted, Quebec. In fact, the Haskell Library was built with an adjoining small opera house, where the international borderline continues to move through the seating area of that opera house, such that there are some seats where you can literally have one cheek in one country and another in another country. And this is said it was set up by no mere accident. The Haskell family who provided the vision and the money in order to build this library and opera house purposely built this library along the border more than a century ago to promote interaction and friendship between U.S. citizens and Canadians. Well, this morning I want to promote something other than U.S. citizens and Canadians, although we're cool with that. Um, But this morning I want to promote the interaction between works and grace, what I will call, the interaction called gospel-fueled effort. This morning, we are straddling over the lines between two nation states, we might say. We're entering a new state in Ephesians. In this letter, in the book of Ephesians, there are 41 imperatives. Imperatives are commands, right? Do this, do that, don't do that, do this. Before chapter 4, verse 1, Of those 41 imperatives, there is only one found in the first three chapters. Chapter 2, verse 13, and that command is simply this, remember, you were once far off. That's all it is. All the rest that is said in chapters 1 through 13 of Ephesians are what is called indicative statements. Indicative statements are statements of fact. They are news, not news you make, but news, in this case, of what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. So in the first half of Ephesians, we have what we can call the state of gospel fact, whereas the second half of Ephesians can be called the state of gospel command or gospel imperatives. This is a pattern that can actually be seen throughout much of Pauline literature, in the New Testament. For example, in Romans, in Romans, the book of Romans, which is Paul's theological magnum opus, he writes the first couple, chap, 11 chapters is primarily indicatives about what God has done. And then in verse, chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 11 chapters to give reasons as to why you should worship. And then he turns in one verse saying, now we're going to focus on how you worship or the, the practicalities of your worship. We see the same thing in Colossians chapter 2. A chapter and a half of giving the gospel of what God has done and how great God is. And then in Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 it says this. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walk in him. It's a similar phrase to what we see this morning in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. We are in a new state. And it goes like this. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now we're going to get the imperatives. This is the word I urge. It's a word for, it's a root word for urgency. There's a passion, an earnestness, a pleading in Paul. Saying, for these reasons, I am passionate. I want you to know these things I'm about to communicate to you. And he says, I'm urgent for you to do what? To walk. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's writings, this word or this term walk comes up often. It is a description of the Christian life, one of his favorite descriptions of the Christian life, where what it means is this, is that you are to intentionally move towards a particular direction and destination in your life. It's the whole direction and purpose of your life. And so Paul is saying, Looking back, for these reasons, I want you to live life. I urgently plead with you to live your life on purpose with this direction. And then lastly, he says, I, want you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That word worthy means in a way that is fitting. In a way that is fitting. So verse 1, Paul is saying, I have something urgent to say about the whole purpose and direction and calling of your life. And what's going to follow from chapter 4, verse 1, through the rest of the book is a bunch of urgent commands. Urgent commands. Live like this. Love each other like this. Bear with one another. Seek unity. Seek peace. But what is it that connects the first half of the book, the state of facts, the gospel state of facts, and the second half of the book, the state of command. Well, what connects them is the word, therefore. And if you have done a Bible study before, you'll come across somebody, you'll come to one of these sections, such as Colossians 2, 6, or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where it'll say, therefore, and everybody who does a Bible study makes a huge deal about the therefore. And they always do it by this. They say, what is the therefore, therefore? And they go into great lengths to talk about the therefore. The therefore is indeed an important word. It is a hinge word from the first half of the book to the second half. And what therefore means is for this reason, for the reasons that I've just expressed, I'm going to now urge you to live in a certain way. For these reasons. In other words, the therefore is bringing the power of reasoning and motivation and bringing that into Paul's now urgent plea for how we are to live our lives. Therefore, what that means is this. All the things that we're going to talk about in chapters 4 through 6 that are commands about how you parent and how you do marriage and how we do life together as God's people, all of that is built upon these motivations that are behind this word, therefore. So Paul is saying, live into your calling. Get urgent about living in a way that is fitting to your calling. This means commitment, resolve, Work hard. You know, our membership commitments here at King's Chapel, the third one is this. 
Do you promise to, in, to resolve and promise to live as becomes a follower of Jesus? Do you resolve? That's commitment. That's hard work. That you'll set your face to live in a certain way. That you'll live and walk faithfully with your life. But if you're going to walk in a certain way, and for the entirety of your life, what you need for, in order to do that is motivation and reasons for doing so. And so while we are straddling the two states, the state of gospel fact and the state of gospel command, what I want to do is show you how, give you a paradigm understanding of what is the reasoning, what does this therefore point back to that gives us the reason and the motivation for walking with the Lord. Two reasons this morning that he call, for calling God's church to live in a certain way, to follow Jesus. And he gives us two reasons looking back at the prayer. Therefore, points back to two things in the prayer. First is this, because God is powerfully working in us. Now, I'm gonna gonna tell you right now, this, this is not necessarily an easy sermon to get a hold of. This is paradigm kind of thinking. Last week was we were just simply talking about the power and then we were giving story after story to convince us of God's power. This I'm trying to affect how you think a little bit more. But God is powerfully working in us. It says in verse 20 with the same passage we looked at last week. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to what? The power at work within us. One of the things that the therefore the reasons to walk into your calling, the reason why Paul is so urgent about what these imperatives that he's going to give us is because God is at work within you. God is powerfully at work in us, and he is working in us in ways that we cannot imagine. That's what we saw last week. In other words, what Paul is saying here with this therefore, and calling us to then walk and live in a certain way, is he's saying this, work hard. Work really, really, really hard. Strive in your life. Why? Because God is at work in you. Wait, huh? Wait, so I have to work really, really hard because God is at work in me? Now this brings up a fairly age-old question in the church. And it can go, it goes like a couple different ways. You can say, who, who, is it, who does the work of change in the church? Us or God? Who does the work of change in my life? Me or God? You see, we we say, I understand that God redeems the church. He saves the church. We don't save ourselves. But once he has saved us, don't we do the work of changing us? Or is it that God does all the work? Once I am saved, do I have some effort to put into this? Or does God do all the work? And the answer is, yes. Is God the one who changes you, or are you the one who changes you? And the answer is yes. We both work. And you might ask, well, how does that work? How does it work in the Christian life? Well, let me me point you to another hinge passage in the Scriptures. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, to help clarify what this means for us to work really hard because God is working in us. Therefore, my beloved, my beloved, this is Paul saying, therefore, my beloved, he's talking to the church, as you have always now obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. That's you and me. We have to work with fear and trembling. Why? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Prepositions and conjunctions matter. 
What the Bible is teaching, the emphasis of the Bible is this word for. You work hard for. What's the reason? For it is God who works in you. It does not say and. Hey, you work really hard and God works in you. No, because God works in you. In other words, the reason why you work hard and strive in the Christian life is because God is doing something. Let me see if I can illustrate and and, and clarify this passage from Philippians chapter 2, 12, and 13 by giving an illustration. One, One theologian said that the effort in the Christian life can be compared to walking on a path through the woods. And at one point, as you're on your journey, you're going to encounter a huge tree that has fallen in the way. And the huge tree is representative of maybe some significant sin issue in your life. It is some area where you need to grow, where you need to change, where you need to be sanctified. We're perfecting the path of righteousness. And at this point, there are four options to get the tree moved in the way we view it as Christians often. Here's one way in which Christians view the work we do in, in the Christian life. First, there's the notion that you're the one who has to move it. And you alone. That God looks at you and says, listen, you were dead and I made you alive. That's good enough. Now you better get, get moving. You get this all out. Start moving that tree out of the way. You, listen, if, you, if you, you just need to buck up, man, and you just got to do it. You got to deal with that sin. In other words, this is kind of the old way, like the, like the SNL way. When someone comes to you and says, I have this problem in my life, this sin issue, and I want to change. And they look at you and they say, stop it. Just stop doing that. You don't want to do it? Change. You do it. This is the conception that many of us have about the Christian life. God saved me back there, and now it's my responsibility to gut it out until the end. Second, there is this strange idea, notion that some people have is called let go and let God. That, that, yeah, I'm supposed to sit back in an easy chair or go sit down on the side of the path and I'm going to go, God, I trust you so much that I'm going to allow you to go ahead and move this log out of the way. But, but we have all these commands about us working, so what are we supposed to do with that? Here's the third option I think is the most often thought of expression of how the, 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 the log in our life is moved, which is this, is that me and God both move the log. You got, Jesus gets on one end And he is really powerful and strong, and that's a good thing. But I get on the other end, and I lift my 1%. But this is foolishness because we understand that if if Jesus has one side, but I'm still responsible for another side, how far will that law get moved? Not very far. Because I still, in my own power, have no ability to move it. Here's the proper relationship of God's working and our working, as it's seen in Philippians chapter 2, is that one is foundational to the other. They're causal. One leads to the other. God's work is central, it is prevenient, that means it comes before, and it is radical, and it enables the secondary work that I do. My, my work is secondary, but it is still necessary. To go back into the illustration, it's not that I move the log, nor that God moves the log, nor that God and I join teams and we each get a side of the log and move it together. Rather, it is that God enters my muscles and my life, and by his power and his strength, I move the log. This is a far different than the way many of us view the Christian life. That it's God's power is out there somewhere, and by my own power, I have to defeat this sin over here. No, the beauty and the good news of the Christian life that we looked at last week is that God's unbelievable, unstoppable power comes to live inside of me and move and work through me. Now, having explained the dynamic of God's work and my work, I ask this. 
if it is foundationally the work of God, which is the real power at work in us and through us, what should therefore be the foundational work of the Christian towards change? In other words, what's the effort that I'm supposed to put forward? And what I would say to that is that the foundational effort, the foundational work of the Christian in our walking is to go back every single day to the power source that's going to enable us to live throughout the day. That we go every single day back to the gospel of Jesus Christ where it says in Romans 1.16, for it is the power of God to save, not simply to regenerate you, but to change you in every single way. Therefore, what I would say is this, let's pursue holiness. Let's follow Jesus. Let's work really hard. But the primary way that we pursue that holiness is through going back to the gospel where it liberates us from that old man, where it liberates us from our old ways, where it sets us free and it empowers us to seek holiness and righteousness each and every day. Now, this debate of emphasis in the Christian life is do we emphasize God's grace or do we emphasize God's work? It comes up seemingly in every generation in which there's those who would say, listen, we need to tell the church that they need to get their act together more and we need to work harder. And then there's those who, in every generation, would say, listen, you know what we need to focus on? We just need to get people to understand the gospel more, and then they'll behave better. Here's, this debate happens, and a couple years ago, there was a debate of a blog between two pastors. One was writing for Christianity Today, uh, and another responded to him, in which one particular pastor was very distressed by the, the, the focus on the gospel, and that we're not focusing enough on the imperatives given in the Bible, but that one other pastor responded to him, and I think gave, gives the right perspective on gospel and works and how they work together. Well, the pastor responded and said this, you want to call people to holiness as the new creatures they are and bring them into a deep awareness of the gospel of grace. I instead think that the right way to think about it is I want to call people to holiness as the new creatures they are by bringing them into a deeper and deeper awareness of the gospel of grace. In other words, they are not running parallel like two sides of the log. It's that the gospel of grace needs to come into my life and empower me to do the work. That it's not simply I do a bunch of effort and I hope to have some gospel on the side. No, the gospel is what is there and is, what is that deep awareness of it day in and day out is what empowers me to live and move and follow Jesus. And so the foundational work, not the only work, but the foundational work of the Christian in walking is to over and over and over again return to the good news of the gospel such that we are moved more deeply and more fully and more completely by God's power at work in us. And you might, we might say, well, then what is the gospel that we're supposed to go back to? Well, that is too large of a question because that's simply what we try to do each and every week. It's so multifaceted and so beautiful, we have to do, go back to it every single week to see how it connects to our lives. But if I could simply just summarize a little bit, and looking back at Ephesians 1 through 3, that's the gospel. And we go back to it and look at it as the power source, and we ask this question, why should I strive and walk and labor and work? Because God has worked, is working, and will work. That would be a shorthand for the, for the summary of the gospel. God has worked in Jesus Christ. He is working by the power of the Holy Spirit and he will work to bring me home. Now, how is it that these things actually fuel effort in our lives? 
Well, let's just run through it very briefly. For example, how does looking at the past work of Jesus encourage my labor and effort in righteousness today? Well, the finished work of Jesus actually encourages my work and labor because I know that I am living out of an acceptance of, and, and I have God's love are not up for grabs. I already have it. Can you imagine how discouraging it would be that if the standard of the way you live life was, hey, if you will live this way, then God will accept you. And if you didn't live that way, then what would you do? You just put your hands on your head, you dig, your, dig a hole, and you put your face in it. Because that is the discouragement of the Christian life. That is the discouragement of religion. But it is radically different than Christianity. As one professor in Westminster Theological Seminary said, a guy named Jack Miller, he said, religion is I obey, therefore I am accepted. The Christian life, though, is I am accepted, therefore I obey. And that is a radical paradigm shift. That I live out of my acceptance. And therefore, the work of Jesus actually encourages me I'm already accepted. I'm already living out of God's love. And therefore, out of that energy and that power and that joy, I obey him. What about the present work of the Holy Spirit? How does that help me strive and labor and give effort today towards obedience and righteousness? Well, the present work of the Spirit tells me that the evil one lies to me. That the cravings of the flesh and the enticement of this world are not greater than the power that lives within me. That there actually is a power inside of me. You say you feel weak, you are weak. But God who lives in you is strong. And he lives inside of you today. He speaks to you and tells you and convinces you that you are God's son and that you are his soldier. He declares over you his call upon your life and that it is filled, your life is filled with eternal purposes. And so the spirit comes in and convinces us of that. It convinces us of his power that we have today. And that gives me the ability to get up off the mat and to go live life today put effort into it because I don't live by my strength. I don't tackle today by my ability. I tackle today by the ability of God within me. And what about the third, the future? The gospel comes with future promises. Did you know that? There are wonderful promises that come to us by way of the gospel, by way of the good news. You see, Jesus' work on the cross made yes to all the promises of the scriptures. He made them a yes And therefore, when it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. That promise has been confirmed and is a definite thing because of the work of Jesus. And so you get to look forward in a day in which you're struggling and you say, I am not complete today. And yet I look forward with hope because I know that all of my labors today mean something are moving me towards an eternal weight of glory. Revelation 21, behold, I am making all things new. Life does not look that new for me right now. Oh yes, but I'm gonna cling to the gospel promises. And that's gonna give me the ability to get off the mat and put effort and and pursue righteousness and pursue holiness. This gives me hope that there are future graces and deeper blessings still to be known and experienced and that Jesus has won them for me. God is doing something. Yes, even in today's failings. He has a plan, and that plan will not fail even when I cannot see how the dots connect. And that motivates us. That gives us a reason to what? Walk. And so the effects of how we will go about preaching and teaching, this is important. This affects how you view your life. When you're struggling, as a Christian, when you're struggling with a particular sin, listen, one of the most significant sins that I've dealt with in the counseling room is when someone comes to me and says, listen, I'm struggling with what I'm looking on the computer. 
And, and listen, there are efforts to be made. Put things on your computer. Make goals. Make commitments to not look at these particular things and not go to these places. But you understand that ultimately, in order to remove your desire for those things, you're going to have to go back to the gospel. You're going to have to go back to the things that would motivate you. And that's actually where the deeper work is done. Not simply, well, why don't you just stop it? Well, that doesn't work. We don't stop it because we desire it. And therefore, we need to go back to the gospel and find something more beautiful and more encouraging and more life-giving that would actually give us the desire to ultimately take away that sin. And so this affects how you view your sanctification, how you view how you change. It also is going to affect how we preach. And let me just tell you where we're going in this series as we look at Ephesians. You may have noticed that we, I ended with chapter 2, verse 10, before I went on sabbatical, and I jumped back in here at the end of chapter 3. I kind of skipped about a whole, whole chapter there, the second half of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3, and now we seem to be diving into chapter 4. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to connect the imperatives of chapter 4, which is all about life together in the church, and we're going to connect them with the indicatives of chapter 2 and chapter 3, which is all about things that God has done for us. Let me give you an example of what it's going to look like. We're going to look at the church and life together as a church, but we're going to call you to the imperatives by motivating you with what God has done and is doing. So for example, next week we're going to look at the gospel of peace for the church. And the indicatives there, we can see in chapters two, chapter 2, verse 11 through 16, where it's going to say this, the gospel of peace has broken down the wall of hostility and reconciled us to one another. That's what God has done. That's a done deal. And yet, now we have the imperative. Therefore, in light of what God has done, I'm going to call you to what? Walk with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. How, how do you bear with one another when we're being unbearable? <laughs> you have to go back to the one who bore the cross to make peace between you and God. And then we'll do it the next week. We'll go back and we'll look, at the, we'll look at unity. The gospel of unity is that we have access to the Father by the one spirit and are now members of God's one household. That's the good news. And that's going to empower us to say, oh, I should maintain unity. And how do I do that? Why should you work hard and strive in a manner worthy of your calling? Because that calling includes the good news that God has, that God is, and that God will do something mighty in us guaranteed. And so what we need to do if we're going to move into those imperatives and have the motivation and the power to do it is we must be empowered by looking back to the gospel each and every time. So Paul says, and I as your pastor say, urgently plead with you, live a life worthy of your calling by going back to the gospel. I also say this. Here's the second motivating force that Paul gives us. Urgently, he says, Live a life worthy of your calling because God is eternally glorified through us. Listen, if you're going to go on a walk, a long, lifelong walk, you need to have the resources to get to where you're going, which is the gospel. But you also have to know where you're going. You have to know where you want to get. What is God's ultimate purpose for the church? It says this in verse 21 at the end of Paul's prayer. To him, to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. In other words, the height of Paul's praise in this prayer reveals the ultimate aim of God that everything else is subservient to. And that ultimate aim of God is his glory. Why is God so powerfully working in the church? 
his glory? Why is God convincing us of God's love for us so that he might get glory? Why is God doing more than we could ask or imagine for his glory? Why is God perfecting the church so that she ultimately becomes something beautiful in Christ Jesus? Why is he doing that? That he might get glory. And where is that glory made manifest of all places? It is made manifest in the church of Jesus Christ. That's, that's us. That's an us statement. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And what is the calling of the church? To give glory and honor to God. That is our calling. In other words, our calling is to be the eternal theater of God's glory. To step on the stage as his bride and display something beautiful. That ultimately, at the end of all things, the stage of all of eternity, when he brings us home, that he will declare over us, you are lovely and beautiful and radiant, and we in that will give glory and honor to him. This is who we're called to be. And in this theater is a display of God's glory in the church enacted as the members of the church do the things that we're going to see in chapters 4, 5, and 6. What does it look like to be a beautiful church that gives glory and honor? We seek peace, unity, reconciliation, forgiveness, and we live life together in fellowship. And this theater is a display of God's glory in the church enacted as the members of the God's people. We, are, we put off the old self and we put on the new self. We're going to see that in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. We're going to live and walk towards each other with love and affection. And the theater is the display of God's glory in the church enacted as the members of the church. God's people then submit to one another. And the theater before God, of God, that we are the church to enact our love for him and give glory and honor to him as God's people will love one another in marriage as Christ loved the church. All these things that we're going to see. The ways in which we are to enact to give glory to God. God is glorified in the church. That is our ultimate purpose. Yes, our mission is to make disciples who obey God, but the end of that, the purpose of that, ultimately is that God will get the glory. God is glorified in the church we see eternally. This is the ultimate purpose of all things. Did you know that? The glory of God is the point of everything. It is not wrong. Some people would say, oh, that makes God really selfish. Yeah, is it selfish for the sun to want to be at the center of the universe, of our solar system? It is just reality. If the earth takes the place of the sun as the center of the solar system, what would happen? It would destroy everything. And the glory of God is the ultimate point of our life and is the ultimate point of the church. It's why God redeems us. This is part of the gospel that we are point back to. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, I'm not going to read all that, but I want you to see there's these gospel things, these good news that God does in our redemption. And in each of them, it's going to stop and give us a reason as to why Jesus or God has done these things. For example, it says this, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be what? to the praise of his glorious grace. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, and were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Why does God do all those things? Why? To the praise of his glory. Paul, in short, this very concise summary of the gospel in verses 4 through 14 of Ephesians 1 is going out of his way of saying, your salvation is ultimately about the glory of God's. The love of God towards me as a sinner is not so God can be making much of me ultimately. It's so that I can make much of him ultimately. 
And this is a paradigm shift that much must happen if we're going to be looking at life as a church correctly. I exist not for myself, but for his glory. We exist as one expression of God's visible church in this world, not for ourselves, but for his glory. Now, this in and of itself is huge to understand because we have a dangerous tendency, and we've had it since the fall of man, to suddenly make life and even the gospel, and yes, even the church, about me, about us. What is this for me? What can Jesus do for me? My wants, my desires, my needs. And this is good to a certain extent, right? Because Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. I came not to be served, but to serve and to seek us and to save us. But God has done those things for a more ultimate purpose, which is his glory. And so if we stop with the gospel ultimately being about us, if we stop there, the danger is that we start thinking that we are the end of all things. That everything in God's universe centers around us. This is what happened in the fall. Adam and Eve said, we want to be the center. And the church can be distracted by this as well, and it becomes so subtle. That we, our honor, our glory, how others perceive us, would be the ultimate object of our activity. This great scene in Prince Caspian. Aren't you relieved for an illustration? That was a lot of preaching. I'm relieved for one. Here, so just take a breath if you need it. In Prince Caspian, there's this, this character named Reepicheep, which is a great name. He's a mouse. He's a sword-fighting mouse, and he's a very valiant mouse. But it's at one point in his valiant and great characteristics of courage in battle, he loses his tail. And Aslan, who's the god character in the, the Chronicles of Narnia series, shows himself to Reepicheep and asks Reepicheep if he can do anything for him, and Reepicheep comes to Aslan asking for the restoration of his tail. And Aslan says this, but what do you want with a tail? And the mouse answered, sir, I can eat and sleep and die for my king without one, but a tail is the honor and glory of a mouse. To which Aslan responds, I have sometimes wondered, friend, whether you think too much about your honor. That could be that could be a great descriptor of the church. There are so many ways in which we stand up for what is right and good with great courage. And yet, are we, are we more concerned about our honor and how the world thinks of us and about our freedoms than about what God just desperately wants, which is for us to give glory and honor to him? The message of the Bible over and over again is that there is one person whose glory is worth living for, and it is him, not us. This is the way the world really works. That we live for him. This is the ultimate worldview to which we are to see reality. Now, if I could turn this into a therapy session for just a second, the most important change and paradigm shift in your life in a counseling room that you need is to have someone look at you and say, life is not about you. Now, that would be, that would be really discouraging if that's all it was. So let's give you the actually more important truth. Life is not about you. It's about him. It's about him. This is why in Psalm 115, verse 1, the psalmist says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Let me ask you this. Is the glory of God the chief longing of this church? Or has it become something else? Is it yours in your life? Is God's glory the motivating force of your life? That all other things center around this. I'm going to give you, see, we don't speak very well about the glory of God anymore. We have to go back to some old English. 
So let me give you an old bishop named J.C. Ryle, and here's what he says. Bear with me, this is a lengthy quote, but feel the heat. A zealous man, he says, in religion is preeminently a man of one thing, and it is one thing to say he is earnest, hearty, and uncompromising, wholehearted, and fervent in spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is God. Whether he lives, whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise, whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame, for all this, the zealous man cares for nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he cares not for it. He feels that like a lamp he is made to burn, and if consumed in burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. What is our calling? To give glory to God. Remember it says in verse 1, to live a life worthy of your calling. That means live a life that is fitting. Fitting. Is your life fitting one who gives glory and praise to God? Now understand this, if you will give yourself over to this, it will, it will actually, the purpose, if you give yourself to the purpose of the glory of God, it will be the sustaining center of the walking that you would do in your life. It will be. It will be the rock upon your, behind your back when it seems like everything else has given way. It will be the joy that no suffering or loss or failure can take away. If we will do this, if we will commit ourselves and say, this is the motivating force of my life, of my walking, there is actually so much hope here that will sustain your walking through whatever mire, fog, difficulty, sinful proclivity, disappointment, or shattered dream you're living in. And it will actually cast before you a grander vision for this church, global, local, and for the church expressed in you individually. God's ultimate aim is his glory. In wonders of wonders, you see this. God has linked his glory to the church of Jesus Christ. That is an amazing thing. And here's what this means. That God's desire for the church to ultimately and perfectly reflect the character of Christ. That's the whole prayer about may you come to the fullness of Christ. That we will have the radiance of Christ at the end of all things. For this long story about the bride of Christ to rise like a phoenix from the ashes as something beautiful and glorious to behold, so much so that we will stun the angels of heaven with our beauty. But at the end of all things, when the angels see our beauty, they will not bow down to us. They will turn to God, Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they will say, what a wonder you are. Because you took a mess like this bride and you made her this glorious. God says, how will I get glory for all of eternity? By making something beautiful of you. I'll flip this another way in the hopes of you hearing it more clearly. Your guarantee, right now, life is difficult. The fight of sin is difficult. You feel like you're losing. You're going, what are you doing here, God? I have suffering and difficulty in my life. I don't look beautiful. The church is not beautiful. Your guarantee that one day you will be magnificent in beauty is because God has chosen to seek his greatest longing, which is for his glory, through your beauty. How do we know he will finish his work in us? Because he gets his glory by you becoming lovely. How will, he know, how will we know he's going to sustain the church? through suffering and persecution and difficulty because his ultimate aim is his glory and the means by which he has chosen to get his glory is through us being sustained. This is why it's good news. 
Recently, I read a letter of a description of this, of discouragement and yet what it would look like to cling to the glory of God and that desire to sustain you through difficulty. This letter from a pastor who had just resigned from a very difficult church situation. He had endured years of stress, financial sacrifice, family strain, and career jeopardy. Yet through it all, this man was known as the chief encourager among his, his pastor friends. However great his difficulties had been, he was always taking the time to write pastors to encourage them and to remind them of the eternal promises of the gospel. And then in one more letter, he wrote to a pastor friend, he shared that he had indeed submitted his resignation. And then he simply said this, I rest in God's passion for his glory. In other words, he said, the church disappointed me and I failed. What do I do when the church disappoints me and the bride is not beautiful, and indeed when I am not beautiful. I look to the fact that ultimately, God is gonna get the glory even in our failings and our lack of beauty, and he's doing something in our church and in the church global that is larger than I can see. Whatever happens, whatever is required of sacrifice or success, this pastor teaches and trusts that God is doing something wondrous in him and in the church because God has a passion for his glory. And understand this This. I'm trying to leak out what I learned from my sabbatical. This is what I learned from my sabbatical. A constant thought of mine before my sabbatical was this, and I said this to my wife often, those who would actually listen to me, it was this. God appears to me, it appears to me that evil is plucking the seeds faster than I can plant, and God's spirit is watering. You ever had that experience with your kids? Or maybe even there, it's like, I'm planting seeds and then plucking them myself. See, there was no momentary, immediate circumstances. This momentary, immediate circumstance that I thought life is going on, I said, that's it. All this labor, all my push towards righteousness, this is all that I've become as a pastor and as a man? This? All my weaknesses were before me? I was looking at lots of ministry labor and I thought, man, this has been nine years this is what I have to show for it. This is called a midlife crisis on purpose. I was discouraged even by largely, like there was all this work that was being done, not by me, but by others. There was one particular move that, by those in our church that were looking to start a, a ministry called Safe Families to care for those who were, who were maybe potentially going to go into the foster care system. We were going to preempt that. We we're going to seek to do discipleship and care. And we put years, people in our church put years of effort into it and money and time. And you know what they did? Just like the church in so many other places, Safe Families International or nationally just decided to take the cultural whim and begin getting kids, putting kids in the homes of homosexuals. And so we said, we have to scrap it. Three years of work, thousands upon thousands of dollars. And I look around at the church and I go, at our, our love for power, our selfishness, our power-obsessed, image-conscious, leaderless church, and I go, we stink. We stink. I was despairing over what God was doing in our church, indeed, in our lives. I was looking at our church and going, we were, we were throwing every effort to save marriages and to see lives changed, to see men discipled and women discipled. And yet I looked at it and I go, we have no discipleship movement in this church. Nine years have been trying to development. We have stalled out over and over and over again. What do I have to show for it? And I was looking for the evidence of God's power that he is doing something beyond what I could ask and imagine, and I wasn't seeing it. So what was I to do? 
Listen, at that point, there's only one thing to do, and that's submit to his glory. Submit and trust that he longs for his glory to be made manifest in the church global, in the church local, in the church known as King's Chapel, and in the saint known as Andrew Henley. And because he longs for his glory to be made manifest in those places, I know, no matter the failings in me, in us, in us, I know his ultimate purposes will come to bear. It says the glory to God in the church forever. That means he's, le- he's writing a larger story with me and with you and with us that is larger than I can see. It's an everlasting one. And so what are we to do? We submit to his will and to his way for his glory and we what? Walk on. You walk on. We long for quick stories and short stories, but God is writing an eternal one. And your, your short story or your chapter may, now may be difficult. It may look like a lot of failings for you, and you may, you may go, I don't know how God's getting glory from my life. Walk on. Walk on. God is writing an eternal story through his church in this world that will ultimately and finally and unstoppably redound, redound to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, we walk on to live into the calling to which he has called us for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot of things here that were like creation <laughs> or before the world before creation and it was formless and void hovering above our heads. So Spirit of the living God, I pray that, that the understanding of what it would look like to make the gospel truths the power for our life, that you would bring that down by your spirit to give us understanding And your glory is something that is larger for us to grasp hold of. And the seeking of it seems too large for us to wrap our minds around. And so, Spirit of the living God, I pray that now you would make what's foremost and void hovering over us and press it into our hearts and our souls. And Lord, where these things are are too great and too grand for us, I pray that right now where we are struggling to submit to your glory, I pray that you would just simply just come convince us of your power, convince us of your power. And that from that we would get off whatever mat we're on, whatever place of depression, whatever place of disappointment, and that we would walk on seeking to honor you, to live more deeply into the calling that is for your glory. Would we submit to how you choose to use us today? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.